Corinthians chapter 1. If you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't, um, we've got a couple folks passing out Bibles. Just raise your hand, they'll give it to you. If you get this, this paperback Bible and you don't like it and you want one more lasting, come and talk to me. I'll get you a nicer one if you want to keep it. And we've just been finding these on eBay and we're just trying to stop the, the sale of them uh, as people have been taking them and selling them on. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. <clears throat> but we do have nicer ones. If, if you want a, you know, a Bible to last you a while, just come let me know. I'll get you one. Up front here. Yeah. We only got two of them. Uh, two people. Right there. He's, he's like desperate. Let me know when you guys are done. We'll get going. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, here. You need help, man. All right. There we go. Um, now, I, I know that 1 Corinthians is not in the anchored reading series, and I'm deviating, and I'll tell you why in a minute. <clears throat> it all resulted in a text I received from a dear friend you'll see in the slides. And uh, it, it brought me back to a, a very special time for Michelle and myself. Uh, uh, April 1st was uh, Michelle and I, it's our uh, 21st anniversary <clears throat> being the pastor of the church here in Thousand Oaks. So we've been blessed. <clears throat> I was cracking up because it, my first Sunday was April Fool's Day. I'm like, you should have known better, you know? <laughs> And then uh, last night, Michelle and I were invited uh, to a dinner with a, a number of couples, and um, they've been friends for years, all these couples. And the conversation around the table was fascinating to me. Um, one of the comments was, in the end times, when, when we see those that we've, we've loved and we've prayed for and we want to see them in heaven and they refuse to receive Christ as our Savior, you know, what will be the emotion and, and I, I had a different angle on it. <clears throat> it's not so much that, you know, there, there's no sadness nor sorrow and, and, and we're, gonna, we're, we're not gonna be lamenting the choice they made because every man is without excuse, the scriptures say. I think what we're gonna be more consumed with emotionally is the fact that he saved any of us. We're, we're gonna be undone by his graciousness. The, the longer I live, the more I realize two things. As John Newton said, he wrote Amazing Grace. He said, I'm a great sinner and God is a great savior. And, and the longer I live, the more sovereign I see his hand in my life and how grateful I am to him. Uh, in addition, the motivation for the passage also occurred when I was in uh, San Marcos this week speaking. And they gave me... a a large amount of time, which was a mistake because I, I brought in like seven different messages and went all over there like, oh, oh. I brought it together, but they were like, no, <laughs> they weren't, they were sweet. And they lauded me as like a hero. And I said, you know, and I'd, I'd reflected back on that article that I had read to you by Naomi Wolf, who's, who's not a Christian, I, I misspoke. Uh, she's also pro-choice, sadly, but her article was good and true. And she said, I'm not a hero. You're just a wussy. Um, and she went through the monumental cowardice of people who are in positions of authority that would have a huge impact in this tyranny and in contending with it if they just stood. And their text to her is, Naomi, you're so brave, uh, but we, you know, I can't do it because, and then she says, fill in your nonsensical excuse. And it usually pertains to I'll be dismissed or my colleagues will, you know, come after me or I'll be censured. And her, and her comment is, you attribute me as being brave or courageous as though somehow you think I was born with this gift. And I don't want to be doing this any more than you do. And, and quite honestly, I, I enjoyed being the pastor of a church. Of like, what, we'd have 300, 350 people. I knew everybody's kind of cool. Now everybody's here. And I was like, hey. <laughs> How are you? Um, and, and I'm 57. I was thinking 60. I'll get that drink with the umbrella on the beach. Just really, and, that, and now I'm, I'm busier than I've ever been. I'm telling Michelle, I, I've never worked this hard my whole life. And I was thinking he'd want to do that to me when I was younger. <laughs> Not when all the wheels were falling off, you know? And I looked at the folks and I said, you, 
you know why you're saying nice things about me? Is because we're desperate. I mean, if, if I'm the guy, <laughs> no, seriously, if I'm, the, I know who I am, I live with me. My wife lives with me, ask her, she knows. <laughs> if I'm the guy, we are really at the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> Amen. God bless you guys. And we're in it together. Look at y'all. Yeah, yeah I, 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 uh, I, I realize that I do what I do because you do what you do. And, and people are blessed by what you do. And they attribute and, and they give me the credit for what you're doing. And I'm with them because you, you make that happen. That's a rarity in a, in a church. I, I can't speak highly enough of you. And I, I think about the season we're in and, and I, I am very uncomfortable with praise. I really am. I, I know who I am. I, I remember a, an illustration, some of you heard it, and, and it was my mentor, Don McClure, and it's a, it's a profound illustration. When he had bought a new car, and right when they came out with the electric windows, and his boys were in the back seat, and they said, Dad, where's the handle for the windows? And he had the master controls up front, and he said, boys, this is a very special car. He was telling us at a pastor's conference. He said, boys, this is a very special car. You have to speak to the window to make it go down. First boy goes, window down. He says, no son, say it with authority. (laughs) Window down. (laughs) Window up. And they're screaming, messing with it. The kids are like, ah. Everybody's giggling in the pastor's conference. He says, you know what? My boys represent you. All you're doing is saying window up and window down, but God's running it. Don't get too impressed with yourself. As a professor in the seminary said to me, if God could speak through the ass of Balaam, <laughs> he most certainly can speak through you. <clears throat> and that's how we came to the passage today. <clears throat> so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'm going to pick up at verse 10. The Apostle Paul is writing this to the church at Corinth, and there's division, much like we have in the Conejo Pastors Fellowship now. And uh, they're all arguing over, you know, I'm, a, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollo, and they're dividing over personality types. And the church is inundated with cult following. We, we, we go after the individual, not the purpose of corporate service. Uh, this church is... is exceptional not because of me the church is exceptional because corporately what we do and and it's it's he's the why and what we do so bottom line it's him and let no one mistake that there, there's nothing special in this room I, I trust me when I when I when I dropped off Victor Davis Hanson Dr. Victor Davis Hanson or actually picked him up in Hanford I got off the plane I got to meet this brilliant man. I get off the plane. I said, you know, sir, I took a class from you when I was at Fresno State. He says, yes, you were an athlete. I said, yes, sir. He goes, and a terrible student. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot. I know who I am. Thanks for reminding me. And, And that's what's so special about this passage. Paul, highly educated, spoke multiple languages, never thought more highly of himself than he ought. He realized the only good thing in Paul's life was Jesus. And that's the only good thing in my life and in yours. I take credit for all the rest. And I'm really good at the rest of that. I'm a really, I'm, I'm a magnificent sinner. But he is a magnificent savior. And the good we have is what he's given us. And he's the one who deserves all the praise. And Paul understood that. And he tries to direct this church that was really dysfunctional and he, he brings it all back. And he does it by humbling them. And I know you're going to enjoy it and I'll minister to you. Let's pick up at verse 10. Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, 
that you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. I want to name my next child Crispus if we're having any more. I love potato chips. I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. I just love that passage. So good. Let's ask God to bless us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your foolishness, the foolishness of God to save men by the preaching of the cross. Lord, you spoke the heavens into existence and you've delivered us from the slave block of sin the same way, by your word. Your word which is true. Your word which brings hope and transformation simply by the speaking of it and the responding to it. You transform our lives. You are the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt with man. You contend in a fallen world with the ideas of truth to set captives free while the world in its deception and its confusion tries to eliminate your existence. They are gnats on the butt of an elephant and they rage and they plot vain things. They take counsel together against you they want to break off your bonds and cast away your cords and you sit in heaven and you laugh you laugh with feeble attempts like a mouse trying to attack a lion and yet God in the foolishness of you you would seek and to save your enemies those who spitefully use you those who are at enmity with you that you and your majesty would humble yourself unto death, even death on a cross. The foolishness of the cross, that God would be crucified, that we might live. Only the humble can see it and receive it. The prideful need no savior. They are the captains of their own ship, setting course 
for the jagged rocks of damnation. But you've come to save us. Lord, please, I pray in the world's wisdom where we've attempted to try to explain everything without your existence, we have come to a place where we are in a royal mess. Awaken us to your foolishness that you save by the preaching of the cross. Let all who are present in the hearing of my voice come to know that you are a great savior and they are in desperate need of one. Lord, I pray that you would save. We're here to lift up no other name but yours. You alone are the way and the truth and the life. And we gather together and we pray in the priceless, matchless, and mighty name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Have a seat. This passage of scripture is humbling, uh, especially verse 26 when it says, for you see your calling brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And, and I, I, I just think one of the freeing moments for me in ministry was to realize that I didn't have to be somebody I wasn't. I, I, would, I would see magnificent orators and gifted men and I'd say oftentimes, Lord, I wish you'd made two of them and none of me. And, and when you're young, you, you're trying to find your way in the world and you, you measure yourself based on others. And, and with, with swimming, it was my modus operandi competition. I, in business, is the same. And yet, the kingdom doesn't work that way. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be a servant of all. Like, I couldn't process that. I just... Seems like a strange way to rise, serving people. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And, and we've even managed to, to redefine humility by pretending to be humble, but not. And the church has um, become cowardly and frightened. We elevate personality theater style approach, entertainment directed. Avoiding conviction and talking about sin. I was blessed by an illustration by my friend, uh, Dr. Keith Rose, as I was listening to his podcast on the way to Anaheim. He talked about when he was getting ready to go to med school that summer he had to get a job, his dad made him work and he <clears throat> worked in a uh, car wash. He was cleaning the cars and back in the 80s and some of the kids are going, not, it's not going to relate to you at all, but we didn't have cell phones back then. <laughs> and and this, this, this car is going through and it's, it's got this antenna on the back that looks like a backward boomerang. For, for us back in the 80s, I was like, that person has one of those Dick Tracy, uh, you know, phones that has no cord attached to a wall. And they can drive and receive signals. And, and that, just to see that backward boomerang antenna on a car, that person was somebody. And, and Keith saw this car go through it. He, he gets in the cars, he's cleaning the interior, and he sees the console, uh, the phone in the middle, and he's, he just he picks it up and he starts seeing if he can call his mom to say he's calling from a cell phone and realizes the entire thing is fake. <clears throat> And the car comes out and the guy goes, you discovered it. He goes, yeah, it doesn't work. He goes, I know. He goes, well, what are you going to do if, if someone needs, you know, you got to call 911. He says, they're going to have to find a phone. It, it, it just, it's designed to look like a phone, but not operate like one. Do you understand, son? You see, it looks like one, so girls want to know me. People think I'm wealthy, but it doesn't operate like a phone. And Keith said, that's the church today. It's designed to look like a church, but it doesn't operate like one. The church is divided. I'm so sickened by this whole Easter thing. Although this week I was greatly comforted by Matt Larson and his wife. 
And they came to visit their pastor at Anthem. And he just said, Rob, in all this, my wife and I just want to talk to you and just, what's going on? We want to gain understanding. We had, we had the best time together. And, and it's no surprise to me because I love his father and I know he comes from good stock. And that's a good man. If you ever get tired of me and you want to go somewhere, I'll go to him. He's a good guy, Matt Larson. And I was blessed by that, but I, I think of the division and what we're dividing over and what they call division, the fact that we would remain open. Contending with tyranny, all of a sudden that's divisive in the church. Not, not the, the tenets of the faith that we've never wavered from, but the fact that we would have the audacity to contend with tyranny and really believe our articles of incorporation and our birth certificate and the constitution are things that need to be defended, and that's divisive in the church. Mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. And, and Paul's dealing with that. And we're contending with the division. And the church is drawn to personality and the church is drawn to its ability to look just like the world with the, the box and the lights and the buttons. But it doesn't operate. It just looks good. And when it's tested and it's an emergency, there's no one on the line. And that's what happened in these last 18 months. And men and women are awakening to that, that faith is much deeper, that it requires the freedom of humanity and the human soul to be able to contend with that which seeks to enslave them, that the scriptures speak of that probably more than anything else, that he's come to set the captives free, that the beginning of freedom is, is personally your freedom from being a slave to sin being set free by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, coming through the foolishness of God, which is to preach to men that they are saved by the preaching of the cross. And that's baffling to people because most would say, I, the sin thing I'm struggling with, like, I, I, I get it, I, I sat where you sat, I, I get what you get. Nobody likes to be told they're wrong. Nobody likes to be judged as though I'm, I'm morally superior than you. I get that. But I'm not the guy. I'm not doing it. He is. This is his earth. You're his creature. You're accountable to him. These are his words. I'm not morally better than you. I'm not the standard. If I was, things would be really easy. And for you to judge yourself based on me, God's like, yeah, yeah, that didn't work. As a matter of fact, I put him in the pulpit because not many things mighty, wise, according to the flesh. I called him because he's the worst of all of you. So that you could see him standing here and look and say, if God can save him, he can save anyone. He put me here not because I'm gifted. He put me here not because I'm more eloquent than you or I'm smarter than you. He put me here as an example. An example of his ability to save anybody. I'm aware of that. And, and I had to confront that in my own life and every day. The Apostle Paul began his ministry by saying, I'm a sinner, and he ended it in 2 Timothy by saying, I'm the chief of sinners. And I often say, you'd think he would have improved. But what he came to realize is the more he knew the Lord, the more he realized that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. And the more I live with me, the less I want of me, and the more I want of him. And the less impressed I am with myself. I think the more impressed we become with ourselves, the more we appear to be something that doesn't operate the way it should. We're just a box with lights. This, this humility is one derived by realizing that we are a sinner, yes. And for those who struggle, and I, I made it real simple first service, it's easy to get past it. I mean, if you struggle with the word sin, it's easy to get past it. We're all going to go to an archery range. Everybody grab a bow and an arrow. And we're going to use an archer's term, which is what archers use. It's called the sin distance. You take your arrow, and you go ahead and shoot for that bullseye. Now, here's the bullseye, and wherever your arrow lands, other than the bullseye, is called 
not hitting the bullseye. <laughs> now, the distance from where your arrow is and where the bullseye is is called the sin distance. How far are you fallen from perfection? Now, we can settle this right now for everybody so we can move on. Is there anyone in the room who's perfect? Let's continue. <laughs> for all of sinned, missed the mark, and fallen short of the glory of God. But the problem with sin is it is a cosmic treason. It's systemic in every human soul. We're not improving. The world in its wisdom thinks that somehow we're improving and we'll obtain a utopia. It's taken less than two years to apply this utopia of socialism to our country and look where we are. And look at the stupidity of man as we embrace and remove absolute truth and think we're the pinnacle of all existence. There's no longer two genders. You have a Supreme Court nominee who can't define what a woman is. Listen, double X chromosome and you can give birth. That's a woman. You have a problem with that? And yet, that's racist in the wisdom of man. We call evil good and good evil. And the world is watching this entire nightmare unfold as we're seeing people bludgeoned in the Ukraine. And we see three nefarious actors and the casualties are just humanity. As everyone's trying to implement their Tower of Babel one world dominance which is really what happens in the absence of God, man wants to be that. And I'm more superior than you and you're gonna serve me. Well, this country, founded in its principles 245 years ago, understood that we're all equal in the eyes of God and we're all given inalienable rights and government is a necessary evil and it has to be restrained. And when it's out of control, gas prices go to six and seven dollars a gallon. Inflation goes through the roof. The only thing that drops in price is fentanyl as the borders are porous and human beings, unlike drugs, are trafficked. You see, human beings are far better than drugs because drugs only give you one high, but you can reuse a human being. And evil permeates the culture in the absence of God. And we grope in the darkness trying to figure out answers and we come to church. And we come to a place where we have to humble ourselves at the foot of the cross because the ground at the foot of the cross is level and it requires humility of all men that the two great truths of the universe, there's a God and you're not him. But he's not a capricious God. He's a good God who comes to save, to seek and to save that which is lost. He is a great savior, but it requires that we confess we're great sinners. The only thing that hinders us from doing that is pride. We don't see our sin the way he does. It's not murder, it's choice. It's not a baby, it's a blob of tissue. We justify our sin. We don't wanna live by the laws of nature and nature's God. And then we end up in a mess. Feminists and women's rights have now lost the war as men now dominate women swimming. Do you understand the stupidity of that? The patriarchy has now dominated women's athletics. And they're all silent. Because in the confusion of removing God, they're trying to figure out how do we put the pieces of Humpty Dumpty back together again? This whole message, which I haven't even begun yet, <laughs> but I'll finish by 12.30, <laughs> was the very first message I ever preached. It was 1993, I was a youth director at an Armenian church. I'm not Armenian. <laughs> Matter of fact, they had an endearing term for both Michelle and myself. They called us Odar, which means other. <clears throat> special people in that church, 
Harold Mansellian. I was told that I couldn't work at the church anymore. They wanted to get rid of me because I was an ODAR and that I had to take seminary classes if I were to continue serving at that church. And the seminary was $395 a unit. I didn't have the money with what they paid me. I had children. I couldn't do it. I went and enrolled at the university or at the seminary and, and told Joyce Workington, the registrar, that I don't have the money, but we'll see what God wants to do. And the day that the money was due, I called Joyce to say, Joyce, um, I don't have the money. She said, Rob, it's all paid for and your book money's here, come get it. I said, who does? She's anonymous. Well, until later that I, I went to Farmer's Lumber in the dilapidated part of Fresno that was owned by Harold Mansellian who was in his 90s and he'd only left Fresno twice in his life, once to go to army training in World War II and once to go back for a reunion. And the guy was rich, but you wouldn't know it. He drove a beat up old truck and lame clothes and he'd walk through his lumber yard and pick up nails and straighten them and put them back in the box. <laughs> and, and I went down because we were doing a, a missions trip to Mexico and I needed lumber and he said, I'll help you. And I came down, he's giving me the lumber and he, I needed plumbing supplies. He said, well, I'm gonna have um, Rose cut you a check. And you can go get it from my friend over at such and such. And I, okay. And, and this, this, this guy made money. He had farmer's lumber and farmer's finance. He's a smart man. And he lived simply that others would simply live. And I, he, had, he had a picture. The, the place was so old, he had a picture of Eisenhower. I mean, stacks of paper. I bet you there was orders from General Washington under one of the stacks. <laughs> and I go over to Rose's desk to get the check. And she says, Rob, I'll go cut it. And she walks over. And she had piles of stuff on her desk. And I noticed there was like eight manila folders, and they were all seminary students uh, with the invoices having been paid, mine was one of them. Harold paid for all these seminary students. Didn't want anyone to know. These were those kind of folks. A lady by the name of Hartunian lost her entire family in the Holocaust with the Turks when almost a million Armenians were wiped off the face of the earth and Hitler got his blueprint on Holocaust from what the Turks did. And she alone came through Ellis Island after losing her whole family and surviving the Holocaust. And I had read her book and I wanted her to speak to our youth group. And she began to speak and she said, well, let's see. And she began to cry, her lip quivered. She couldn't get through it. She sat down and I said, it's okay. And I just read from her book. These were good people, godly people. They didn't tell you about Jesus. They showed you about Jesus. Church had been there a hundred years and, and for the first time, the pastor, Roger Manassian, who's still living and he's a precious man, I call him Bodveli, which is an endearing term for pastor in Armenian. Bodveli Roger came to me and he said, Rob, it's time you preach. Oh, okay. I'm gonna give you January 31st, you're preaching. Thanks, Bodveli. What do I do? You'll have to figure that out. I was gonna be preaching in the church and it's a beautiful church. I was going to be up at the pulpit here. I was super excited. And I, I didn't know how to preach. And I'd listened to messages, and I had my favorite teachers. So I found one, and I listened to it, and I memorized it. <laughs> and I preached his message. I was excited because it was such a good message. I knew they'd be blown away, and they'd think it was mine. Ego. God's worked through that a little bit. And I was going to be up there doing that. You see that guy? That, that's the pulpit. But what I didn't realize is Roger had asked me to preach on Super Bowl Sunday. When Troy Aikman devastated the Bills 52 to 17. And nobody comes on Super Bowl Sunday. Oh, and I forgot. The heater in the sanctuary is broken. So they put me in the fellowship hall. And I preached this man's message. Dr. Walter Martin. The message was entitled, The Foolishness of God. It was the best sermon I've ever heard. I won't do it justice. I'll give you the outline today, but it ministered to me. And though I go through the Anchored series and I, I teach from the passages in the Anchored series, this was motivated because it's my anniversary. And also by this text I received from Dr. Judy Mikovits. She said, I said, happy birthday, Judy. I, I hope I got the day right. And this was April 1st. She said, Thanks, Rob. Yes, only April Fool's Day works for God. <laughs> and I said, today is my 21st anniversary as pastor of God. Speak equally as humorous. My first Sunday as pastor was April Fool's Day, the foolishness of God. 
is wiser than the wisdom of men. And that made me think about April Fool's Day. April Fool's Day and the foolishness of God. The first message I ever preached. April Fool's is interesting. It, it originated in the switching of the, uh, of the two calendars in history, going to the Gregorian calendar. The Middle Ages, New Year's Day was celebrated on March 25th in most European towns with a holiday that in some areas of France specifically ended on the 1st of April. And those who celebrated New Year's on 1 January made fun of those who celebrated on other dates by the invention of April Fool's Day. The use of the 1st of January's New Year's Day became common in France only in the mid-16th century. And that date was not adopted officially until 1564 by the Edict of Rousselon when France switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar uh, as called for by the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was established by the Catholic Church to contend with the Reformation. The Julian calendar did not calculate uh, the leap year correctly. And so it kept pushing spring back and that was something that needed to stay where it was. And so they came up with the Gregorian calendar was far more accurate and they implemented that to stay with the, the Easter season. And that's where they got this April Fool's Day because people would go out to celebrate New Year's on April 1st were idiots. And those who now embrace the, the, um, the Gregorian calendar on January 1st, which is what we do, that's when you celebrate New Year's. Well, I was an impressionable young man. I didn't know what to preach. And when I heard this sermon, it was the best I'd ever heard. And I did my best to memorize the entirety of it. If you don't know who Dr. Walter Martin is, he appeared for over 10 years as a regular panel member on the largest nighttime radio talk show in the nation. The John Nebel Show was heard in 43 states, six days a week uh, over NBC radio network. Professor Martin, he was a doctor, uh, also appeared on the Phil Donahue Show, the 700 Club, the John Ankerberg Show, Trinity Broadcasting Network, Canadian Broadcasting Network, and many other syndicated radio and television programs. And Dr. Billy Graham said of him, he is one of the most articulate spokesmen for evangelical Christianity that I know. And he was a remarkable man. He actually died on his knees in prayer. I mean, that's a good way to go. You punch right through. You're like, boom, done. Hey, what's up? Amen. Oh, hey, oh, what's going on? Hey. In the sermon, and, and only he could put these, these words together with such eloquence, uh, he said, the golden age of Greece led the Greeks to Plato's philosophy, utter disaster, moral chaos, the multi-polytheistic worship. They came up with a god for everything under the sun and one for the sun itself, Zeus. Athena, Aphrodite were the gods they conceived, yet they each had human characteristics, including sin, and could overcome and be overcome by humanity. The totality of man's wise efforts to find God ended up in divine bankruptcy, and to rephrase Paul's sarcastic words towards the ungodly, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom couldn't get itself arrested. It couldn't find out anything about God. We've tried to come up with anything to remove him, to throw off his constraints, and we've found ourselves, especially in the last 18 months, in this mess. And that the scriptures would say, that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. I, I can consider a lot of things foolish, but God's not one of them. To attribute that characteristic to God is, is difficult. Foolishness of God. What is, what is the foolishness of God? Well, Paul points it out as he's, he's, he's humiliating these Corinthians. He's saying the foolishness of God, the foolishness of God is to save men by the preaching of the cross. Drawing men to what we wear as jewelry, which represents the most painful death ever devised by human minds. Pain, as we covered in the previous message, it's a gift from God. The Via Dolorosa, the way of pain, when Jesus healed that leper and touched him, be careful what you ask for, son. You're gonna feel pain. You'll feel the touch of a human hug, but you'll feel pain. That's what happens in a fallen world with sin systemic in the human heart. Hurting people hurt people. And if you want to save them, you can't be safe. You've got to be dangerous and wise. You go into the thick of it where the great need is. You're mine now. The world will consider it foolishness that you would take such risk. But courage is spelled R-I-S-K. And without courage, 
Truth is an orphan. Don't be afraid of pain. And the foolishness of cross, the foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of God to save men by the preaching of the cross. God is foolish, but not as we perceive foolishness. You think about Noah. Bless you. (laughs) Noah was told by God to build an ark where there was no water. And he gave him the dimensions of it. It took him a hundred years. He was a preacher of righteousness for a hundred years. Didn't have a single convert. And the ridicule he and his sons and his family endured while they're building an ark where there's no water. What are you, an idiot? Look at you building this thing. Why are you doing God told me to? Why? Well, the earth's going to be flooded. Why don't you get a smaller boat? Well, because all the animals are going to come on. From where? All over the earth. In pairs. Male and female. X, 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 Y. And then it's going to rain and this will float. Now you want to repent and come be with us. You're an idiot. You need to go to Happydale. You say, that didn't exist. It's fantasy. Well, Dr. Montgomery would differ with you. Dr. Montgomery did some exploration at Mount Ararat, 14,800 feet, where there's no white oak, no trees, nothing. Nothing grows at 14,800 feet on Mount Ararat. It's nothing except for grass. And he found tons of white oak in a structure that was infused with bituminous pitch. Ah, The Turks have sealed it off. Aerial photographs of the site that he spoke of. Here's another one. And this is my favorite. And as they've done excavations of it, White oak, with bituminous pitch, white oak doesn't, doesn't exist for almost 800 miles from that location. They have sea creature encrustations at 14,800 feet. How does the ocean get that high? Or how do those creatures, they, 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 they migrated. Now, it doesn't make any sense, and it didn't make any sense to Noah, but Noah did it. And Noah and his family were saved. And, and every culture, by the way, has a story of an ark. Almost every culture in their creation story. The different names. Even the Polynesians. Fascinating. That's the foolishness of God. Build an ark where there's no water. For a hundred years. And then, Sarah and Abraham... Sarah, uh, Abraham was in his hundreds. Sarah was in her 90s. And God says, you're going to have a child. They, they were childless. It's like, what are you talking about? You can't find a gynecologist and all of Canaan who's going to prove that. She's 90. Hey, I got to go for my checkup. Almost 100. So, hey. and, and he's telling everybody, my descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. And he wavered at one point, and of course, Hagar, he slept with her, and Ishmael was born, and we have that mess now. It's a Middle Eastern problem. Thank you, Abraham. (laughs) But then Isaac, who is called Laughter, was born because Sarah laughed when the angel said she'd be with child. And here they are. (laughs) Imagine that dedication. Pastor Rob, would you dedicate our baby? (laughs) And we're the parents. We are. All right, (laughs) that's foolishness, foolishness. It says in Romans, therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him 
whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope and hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver He did not stagger at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accredited to Abraham as righteousness. You took me at my word. We're in right standing. Charlie's 28, Charlie Kirk, and and he said, we're winning. He sent me a text, we're winning, as he, he's excited about the things happening across the country, we're winning. And, and I, I texted back, and I don't know where it came from, and I didn't intend it to be insulting, but encouraging, and I said, victory is not defined by the outcome, but by the obedience. I don't need to stand on the block. I don't need the accolades of men. I need to do what God said to do. I may not see the finish line. I may not even be the one to carry it to that point, but I'm to be faithful. I'm not to be safe. I'm to be dangerous and wise. I'm to engage in it. I'm to go right in the middle of the fight and to bring the hope and the truth of Christ. And the outcome is not up to me. And the victory is not determined by the outcome. The victory is determined by my obedience. Simple. Obedience to what he says to do. But what he says is foolishness. You're contending with an unstoppable juggernaut of a one-world government. I'm sorry, what? Are Are you ascribing equal power to those morons that the God of the universe holds in the span of his hand? They are gnats on the butt of an elephant. They're nobodies. And when God says do something, do it because it's the hope for humanity. You're here because one in nine Americans decided to obey the the defining of freedom and contended with the greatest empire on the face of the earth that wanted you to be serfs and slaves. You're here because 650,000 soldiers died on a field of battle to contend for the freedom of man that would be so unjust as to enslave a human being based on the content of melanin in their skin. And they fought, bled, and died. And you're telling me that they are an unstoppable force? Why are you in church? And what God do you subscribe to and believe in? Because your God is puny and pathetic. But my God, my God laughs at them. To the world, it seems foolish that we would be men and women of faith. To the world, it seems foolish that we would pray in front of Disney. To the world, it seems foolish that we would worship a God they can't see. To the world, it seems foolish that we would proclaim what God says to be true. But I must tell you, the foolishness of God is that he would save a man like me by the preaching of the cross. If God can do that, he can do anything. He changed my life. My life has meaning and purpose. And his word is true. And I have known this and know it more every day I live on this earth. And nothing matters more to me than obedience to him. I don't need the outcome. That doesn't determine the victory. Obedience does. The foolishness of God Moses in front of a burning bush at the age of 80. He'd been relegated to the backside of the Midian desert from the age of 40 to 80. His skin was leathered. He had no, no one to speak to but the goats. He comes upon a bush that's burning but yet not being consumed and from it comes a voice. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Who shall I say has sent me? I am. 
Do you got another name? I'm the self-sufficient one. I will be for you, Moses, whatever you need when you need it. Jehovah Tizdekinu, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Rapha. Those characteristics are attached to the truth of my name. I am. I have always been and always will be. I am self-existent. I am God. I am has sent you. Just tell him that. Yeah, it's a little crazy. We can have this conversation, son? No, I'm, no, I'm going. I'm going. Tells Pharaoh, let my people go. I am has told me to tell you that. Pharaoh wants to contend with the God of the universe and says, who is God that I should obey him? God just hammers him with 10 plagues, devastates his nation. Pharaoh relents and lets him go. Of course, we know the Egyptian army drowned in the Red Sea. Scholars say that the Red Sea was just three inches of water, and that's even a greater miracle how the Egyptian army drowned in three inches of water. <laughs> they try to explain this away because it's not processing. And yet foolishness, foolishness to obey such a command, and yet Moses obeyed. Victory is not determined by the outcome but by the obedience Joshua, Jericho stood in the impediment to entering into the promised land. Its walls were 65 feet high, 15 feet thick. A chariot could ride around the top of the walls. They had to take this down. Joshua goes to the Lord for the battle plan. God says, you're gonna march around six days. Do nothing but march. And on the seventh day, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to blow trumpets. <laughs> I, uh, I, got, I got to go back and tell the other officers this battle plan. I mean, you're kidding, right? I mean, they're going to shoot at us for six days and seven. I mean, no, like trebuchets or ladders or SEAL team drop in. None of that is <laughs> foolishness. And when they did, you see the excavation of Jericho. It looks like a child with a sandcastle at the beach took its hand and pushed it from the inside out like a flower opening up. The walls just tumbled. The walls came down. Foolishness. Foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And before you think, well, that's just Jews. Well, let's just take a Gentile. Naaman, riddled in leprosy. The prophet says to dip in the Jordan seven times. And this man has conquered all regions of the world. And his home is on the Pashan River, which is stunning. And literally, the Jordan in this location looks like Conejo Creek. It is filthy. It is, and at the time, it's just mud. And he looks at his lieutenant. And he says, why would I dip in this misery. He said, if he'd asked you to conquer nations, you would have done it. Do what the prophet said. It's foolishness. Do it. Seven times. You can just see him going one under. Stupid. Two under. Three under. Four Comes up and says the seventh time he came up, his skin was like that of a baby. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. The obedience to his word and his command, the outcome is not the determination of victory, the obedience to what he says is. But the greatest foolishness of all as we gather this day in this room is the foolishness of the cross. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. I close with this as we prepare to take communion. And I was mindful of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers and take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us, and he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, and then he will speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Now listen to this, children of God. God says, yet I have set my king 
on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me as he sees him hanging on that cross. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And the way you're gonna do it is you are going to bleed and die on that cross. Victory from death. Not just death, humiliating death. Why humiliation? Why so much pain? Because that's what the world is inundated with. You see, pride is the poison that keeps you from the salvation of God. And God wants you to know I've even taken care of that. I left the glory of heaven's throne for the humiliation of an earthly cross where I was beaten, bled, and died so that my blood could be shed for your sins. My blood won't work for you. Mine has sin in it. Yours won't work for me. It has sin in it. Remember the bullseye? His doesn't have any. And he redeemed us while we hated him. He loved us. He loved his enemies. He did good to those who spitefully used him. And he had you on his mind when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And all of that is touching you. Now, it may not be, because as the scripture says, we preach Christ crucified, and to the Jews it's a stumbling block, and to the Greeks it's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But to many of you, as the scripture says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who have been saved and being saved, it's the power of God. It's foolishness to you because you are poisoned with pride. You don't see the humility to redeem you. You have questions for God. You want to talk to him. If you've done the anchored reading series as I have this week, I really wanted to preach from Job. That's a beast. Job loses everything. It predates Genesis. Job loses everything as a righteous man. He never knew the end of the story. We get to see it. And he has questions for God. And so do all of his quote-unquote comforters. His wife so detested him as he was sitting in the town dump scraping boils with a broken pottery shard, lamenting, trying to figure out why this calamity would come upon me. I haven't been disobedient. This doesn't look like victory. Victory's not determined by the outcome. It's determined by the obedience. Oh, Job, you are victorious. This book will be the most profound book in the scriptures when the world sees that in a fallen world you can trust a living God. And Job gets his education when God speaks to him. I think it's in chapter 37 when God says, all right, you want me to answer your questions? Let me ask you some. Who is this who counsels, who, who darkens my counsel with words that are without knowledge? Where were you when I guided Orion through the night sky? Where were you when I held the, the oceans back? And as he goes through chapters of pointing out the perspective from the eyes of God that you and I have no clue about, because he knows the beginning from the end and all points in between, and he has a way to warp and woof the fabric of your life to make it so unbelievably beautiful if you'd but trust him. And you have questions for him. I'm not moving until you answer my question. Foolishness. You're an idiot. I didn't say that. He did. 
but the power of the cross, the foolishness of cross, the foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of God is to save men by the preaching of the cross. The cross is our salvation. He paid the penalty. He did it for us. The wages of sin is death. He took care of it. He bled and died in your place and in mine. I close with this as we prepare to take communion. My favorite illustration, I can't think of a better. I was a lifeguard. I know you hard, know it's hard to believe, but I was. And I, I went to save a guy that was drowning. He was wearing a Raider shirt. I was a Charger fan. I'm like, let him go to hell. Let him <laughs> it was the end of the day. They didn't listen to us. They didn't heed our commands. He got stuck in this by his own volition. I swim out there. I'm freezing. We'd had a lot of rescues that day. I get out there. His friends are on the shore laughing. I get out there. I give him the tube. And he goes, I, I don't need it. He's purple. He's heavy set. He's wearing a Raiders thing. And he's getting sucked out further while I'm waiting for this idiot. And he goes, I, I, don't, I don't need it. I can get in. I'm like, dude, you can barely float, let alone get in. You're going to drown. And finally, he hits a part of the, the rip current and gets a little water and his mouth starts coughing. And he panics and he says, I, I, I need the tube. I wasn't a Christian. I think if I was a Christian, I still probably would have done it. I don't know. I'm, I'm floating on this thing, and I look at him, and I go, you say please. <laughs> He's like, what? I go, you say please. I said, I've been, I've been freezing my butt off out here. I told you to move. You didn't listen. I come out here. You, you're telling me you don't need it. I know you need it. I do this for a living. And you're more concerned with your friends laughing on the beach when we're getting sucked further and further out, and it's harder and harder for me. Now you say please. He's like, Please. I'm like, good, hook up. I bring him in. His friend's laughing at him. He goes, that guy saved my life. You're laughing at me. You're not my friends. He leaves. My point is this. We're so concerned to be pleasers of men than obeyers of God. And today God says, today's a day of salvation. Call on the name of the Lord. You will be saved. Two things you need to know if you want to be saved by the foolishness of God that he would save you by the preaching of the cross is one, I'm a great sinner. Two, Jesus, you're a great savior. And like that man did in the ocean, he said, save me. I didn't realize years later When I called out to God, he didn't treat me like I treated that man. He couldn't wait for me to be saved. He's loved me ever since. He fashioned me in my mother's womb. Before I was born, he knew me. He loves me. All of that by words. Foolishness of God. That word is living and it's moving in your heart and he wants to save you now. This is the depiction of salvation, his body broken. That's the bread. Let me have the worship team come up. His body broken, that's the bread. His blood shed for the remission of our sins. This, this is a public testimony to the world that we are unified in the realization that what un, unites us is that we know two things. We're great sinners and he's a great savior, but more importantly, he's my savior. And you say that, he's my savior. Jesus, be my savior. Jesus, save me. Help me. Grab that tube. He'll take you in. Don't worry about the friends on the shore. Pride is the poison that keeps you from being saved. Pride is stupidity. And the foolishness of God is wiser than that. Call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved, and his name is Jesus. He is the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. And he's the one who was crucified, his body was broken. He's the one who poured out his blood at Calvary because blood must be shed for the remission of sins. It was him, he's yours, he's your savior. Jesus, save me. And he's so gracious and he can't wait. And for some of you already has, this is a time to continue to say thank you. We do this in remembrance of him. Let me pray and 
you take communion. Do the bread first, cup second. Body had to be broken before the blood was shed. If you screw it up, you're going to heaven, don't worry. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thank you that you are a great savior. Lord, we recognize that we are great sinners. Lord, each of us individually declares, would you be my savior? God, save me. Call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And so Lord, we know that you are the savior of the world. We thank you for your sacrifice that paid the penalty of our sin, that reconciled us to the Father and purchased us from the slave block of sin to a life of abundance and freedom with not a capricious king, but a mighty king who loves. And we praise you and we thank you this day as we take this communion in remembrance of you. In the matchless mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.